Welcome to yet another episode of the New Space India podcast. India may have about 50 operational satellites as of today in various orbits. How secure are these satellites from threats that are emerging from other debris or other satellites? Are we able to tell which is a debris and which is an operational satellite? Are we able to tell in real time if there are maneuvers that are made towards our own satellites? These are very interesting questions. In 2007, the chinese anti satellite test caught the world's attention and it also sparked a subtle reply from india back then however it took india more than 10 years to make a decision to conduct an anti satellite test to demonstrate the capability to the world as well if more such tests happen space debris will become a major threat to operators all around the world in this episode of the new space india podcast daniel poras provides his insights into what is space security what has been india's role in the entire domain of space security and its actions as well as what could india do as a prominent player in the domain of space security to provide some leadership at the global stage hi daniel uh, welcome to this episode of the new space india podcast thank you narayan it's a pleasure to be here let's talk about uh, space security Can you, you know, give us a glimpse of what is space security for a noob like me? <laughs> sure. Uh, actually, I think a great way to explain exactly what space security is, is to contrast it with what it is not, uh, which is space safety. Um, so one of the studies that we've been doing at Unidir recently has been looking at the terms space safety and space security to figure out, you know, well, what are these two things? You know, in space. in the english language we can make a distinction between safety and security but it's not the case in in all languages so what do we mean what why do we make this distinction and the way that we kind of break it down is space safety refers to freedom from incidents and and actions that are not intended so uh, having something happen to your satellite that is an accident like maybe getting hit by a piece of de- of uh, uncontrollable debris boom Uh, nobody intended for that to happen you know uh, the fact that debris exists is just a part of the it's part of the risks that we face in space it's inherent to to that environment but no one intended for that piece to hit the satellite whereas space security is where we look at things and actions that are intended to happen so we're not we're no longer talking about debris hitting your satellite we might be talking about a missile hitting your satellite or somebody jamming your satellite with a, a really powerful electronic signal or potentially um using a, a a little tiny maneuverable satellite to get up next to your own satellite and and mess with it in some way. So security really has to do with some of the geopolitical rivalries that we're dealing with on earth that are starting to be reflected in in outer space. And and the main thing that we look at at the United Nations level is the prevention of an arms race in outer space and we think that by addressing this issue we can really uh, deal with a lot of the space security challenges that are out there right and that's an interesting point that you raise because i guess this is all attached to the cold war and you know placing weapons in outer space and and then preventing that uh, so that there's no like you know countries just killing off each other by doing this right yeah well maybe not quite so extreme but it it does go back to the cold war of course because back then the the Soviets and the Americans who were the premier space powers uh they were really the only ones who were looking at these activities. I mean we we often talk about the militarization of outer space but the that happened at the very very beginning of space exploration because the air forces and the navies were involved in the development of some of these uh of some of the rockets and the satellites that were developed. And of course they started thinking, well how can we use these for military purposes? And so in, in the early days satellites were just being used to monitor each other. Uh the Soviets and the Americans would use them to kind of keep a track of uh, in particular um, their nuclear forces and to see how much they were building up nuclear weapons. But then we started seeing this whole movement towards well if my rival is putting up satellites to to watch me, well, maybe I need to be able to shoot those satellites down from time to time. And and then they started coming up with new ideas about you know how do you neutralize satellites and so very early on we started seeing uh, the Americans were developing missiles that you can fire from the ground or from the air uh, and hit a satellite in space and the Soviets were developing these um, there are these little 
drones, essentially, that you would launch into orbit and it would do a quick lap around the Earth and then catch up to its target. And it would detonate really close to the target. And then the shrapnel from the detonation would chew up the other satellite. And so back then, it you had two actors. There really weren't that many different types of counter space capabilities. They were very visible. And so you didn't really see a whole lot of development. Um, and once the Cold War ended, it uh, I think a lot of the Soviet programs pretty much got shelved indefinitely. They didn't know when they would be able to afford to work on those things again. Uh, and the Americans also said, well, we're the premier power in space. So, you know, we can probably just take a back seat on this issue. Uh, and then 2007 came along. And I think for a lot of people, that's a, a landmark moment when the Chinese tested their own anti-satellite missile and they, they blew up a satellite uh, in, in low Earth orbit, but pretty high up, uh, about um, 980 kilometers. And for a lot of folks, that was a big signal that, whoa, space security is no longer just about the Americans and the Russians. Now China's involved. And slowly uh, over the last you know, decade, we've seen other countries have started looking at this issue and saying, hmm, maybe we need to have counter space capabilities too and, and have the ability to neutralize um, satellites. And so, of course, uh, as you know, last year, India became one of the, the latest countries to obtain those capabilities and um, when they, uh, during Mission Shakti. And, and that was also a big wake-up call for everyone because we hadn't seen uh, an ASAT test or a demonstration that hit a satellite since 2008 uh, when the Americans did one. And it was just a big reminder for everyone that, oh, this is, this is still a big issue and we have to deal with it. It's an interesting, uh, you know, bridge to India that you bring because, um, you know, why do you think, for example, India waited so long to conduct this test? Because uh, missiles have been in India for quite a long time. And, uh, you know, this capability was just about putting together the missile and, you know, just targeting the satellite. Yeah, uh, it, that's actually a really great question. Uh, we, in this field, the sector, I think we've been hearing rumblings that India wanted to test something like this since 2007, when, when the Chinese had conducted their ASAT test. Uh, some, some folks started looking at this issue and said, hey, we need to be able to demonstrate that if the fight goes to space, then, then we can act there as well. Now, India has very sophisticated missile defense technology. They've been working on this for years. And we had seen a number of uh, demonstrations where the, the Indian Air Force and Indian Navy were um, hitting smaller and smaller targets from further and further away. And everyone just kept wondering, okay, so when, when are you finally gonna do it? Uh, I think India finally got to a point where perhaps it, the, the government and some of the authorities started thinking that it is possible that there's going to be some new rules coming out on, on an ar on arms in space. And they said, look, we don't want to get stuck in a situation like before, especially with nuclear, uh, nuclear weapons testing, that they didn't get, get a chance to develop their own technology before it was banned. So I think maybe they were trying to stay ahead of the curve. But the, the repercussion of having tested the ASAT is that it has lent some, uh, or, or the way that the world reacted to the test and the way that the test was conducted has actually set out and solidified a little bit the norms that, we, that we're establishing for this type of activity. Um, you know, for example, in 2007, when the Chinese did their test up at 980 kilometers, I mean, everyone freaked out. Even to today, we cannot talk about space debris without somebody bringing up the Chinese ASAT test. It's almost like you know, the two go hand in hand. Whereas with the, with the Indian test, they did it much, much lower altitude. It was about 280 kilometers. And um, they, the, the message that they put out about the, about the ASAT test was immediate. Uh, we had um, you know, Prime Minister Modi came out right away and said, you know, we're doing this for defense, which maybe it's a little bit tricky to understand how a missile that blows up a satellite is for defense, but it, it does have some deterrent purposes. Uh, and they, they really tried to, to have a parallel message with the ASAT test that said India is not about an arms race in space. We want to maintain uh, space as a, an, an area that's exclusively for peaceful purposes. But you know, the underlying message was very clear. If we have to fight in space, we can and we will. Uh, I, I think that sends a very strong message to the rest of the world that these types of weapons are a part of a, a modern military. They're just something that we're going to be seeing in the future. 
the danger and the concern with these types of weapons is, okay, if you're going to start blowing up satellites, how much debris are we talking about creating? And we're not even talking about ever having used a, an ASAT against a satellite in, in a conflict situation. We're just talking about testing. And, and the ASAT tests uh, that, that we've seen over the last you know, 30 or 40 years, each one of those tends to be one of the single largest events on, on the creation of debris, um, single events. So we, we really need to be careful about how we, how we do and how we conduct those tests. The whole, you know, India perspective to this is also about, I guess, uh, coming from the nuclear perspective where, uh, you know, India was excluded as a part of the whole, uh, you know, nuclear proliferation treaty and, uh, and also, uh, you know, that. So I guess, um, you know, the political leadership in India was very wary that uh, an act or a kind of an international treaty or something would come up, which would not allow India to conduct these tests. Uh, and wanted to kind of sneak in the test before such thing would happen, right? It's hard to tell a country that they should not be developing certain types of uh, you know, weapons and capabilities to defend themselves when they have a very difficult relationship with a much larger, potentially more powerful neighbor. But as I said, the, the trick here is going to be how, if we're going to permit this type of testing, how do we do it in such a way that it doesn't have a bad impact on the rest of the space environment? Um, you know, Mission Shakti, despite the fact that the that the test took place at 280 kilometers in altitude, we still tracked debris that was almost a thousand kilometers in altitude. And just to give your listeners an idea of of how the low Earth orbit is spread out, the International Space Station flies at 400 kilometers. So that means that this test and the debris that resulted from the test could potentially put human spaceflight in danger. Uh, and so that's one of the things that we would like to, to address more explicitly so that states come out and say, all right, maybe we do accept the fact that some countries are gonna pursue these capabilities. It's, it seems more and more like it's gonna be uh, an integral part of a modern military. But if you're gonna be testing these things, don't ruin outer space for everyone. Uh, you know, the Russians did a, an ASAT test a few weeks ago, and it, I know it sent a lot of nerves uh, into, into overdrive, particularly from the Americans, but importantly, they didn't hit anything. Uh, now, we've heard reports that it was a successful test, so we're assuming that either they had a virtual target and they just kind of said, all right, um, this, is, uh, this is the area where we want to, where we want to hit, and as long as our missile is in this range at this second, and, and at this altitude, then we can say with confidence that we could have hit an object that was traveling there. Um, and I think the Russians have, have had quite a bit of experience already uh, with, some of the, with some of these tests, and they, and they know that creating debris is a, is a non-starter, and they have a lot of satellites there. So that's something that we think, in, in terms of dis at the international level, you know, discussing arms control rules and how we can put some curbs on, on different behaviors, this is an area where a lot of people can probably agree. Uh, for the first time testers, you know, in, in, in this case, how, uh, you know, feasible do you think is uh, setting a virtual target versus like a real target? Because, um, you know, for me, for example, uh, the natural instinct says that if it's a first time testing country, they would probably choose always a physical, you know, satellite because it everybody can see it and then they can say that, you know, we, we've achieved it than setting a kind of a virtual one. Yeah, right? and, and there's potentially some, some truth to that. So for example, nobody heard about the first Indian ASAT test that happened in 2019, which took place in February, because they didn't hit anything. Now, there are conflicting stories as to whether or not they, they were shooting at a virtual target or whether they missed the target. So that kind of got glossed over and, and it's understandable. It didn't really make any headlines because it was just a rocket that went up and down, that's it. When you hit something, it does make a big show. There, there is something for everyone to focus on and it makes some headlines. Uh, I was very disappointed actually to find out that it doesn't make that many headlines. But the, the trash that results anyway, that could be a much bigger concern in despite the how much prestige you might get from actually saying like okay we can actually hit the satellite there it does come with a downside 
and hopefully the, the public pressure will be such that states will not want to incur that kind of negative publicity. And they'll say, yeah, we want to, we want to show everyone that we, that we can hit a satellite if we have to, but at the same time, we need to do this in a way that won't, um, you know, that, that won't get the whole world mad at us. So one of the options that you could potentially do is just wait until the satellite is much lower in orbit. Um, we've been looking at this idea of some guidelines for anti-satellite testing. And the first thing that we thought was, you know, don't hit anything. Uh, and Mariba, Dr. Mariba John, and I discuss this all the time. And uh, I, I managed to get three principles into five words, no debris, low debris, notification. So if you're gonna test, don't create debris. If you have to create debris, like you absolutely have to hit the target, do it at an altitude that's low enough so that there's no long-lived debris and the debris comes down relatively soon. And I think India tried to do that. They did it at 280 kilometers and you know we're still tracking some debris. So some authorities said that the debris would be there for weeks, but the reality is we still don't know how, you know, how to predict where, where the stuff's gonna go. So we know that 280 kilometers is probably still a little bit too high. However, um, we also know that there's, there's gonna be testing for missile defense. We still see testing for mid-course intercepts. And, and that usually takes place at around, you know, between 100 and 200 kilometers in altitude, uh, and sometimes a little lower. So in order to avoid creating most of the debris and also to not get into a political quandary with missile defense folks, for us, we think low debris means kind of hitting something between one and 200 kilometers. And yes, there will still be some debris, but it will come down even sooner and, and hopefully won't go up quite as high. And then finally, the last point is notification. Tell somebody, you know, if somebody tests a, an ASAT, there could be other satellites nearby. There could be other operators who are planning to do things in those areas, maybe even in those orbits in the future. So at least try and notify uh, either an international organization that can then notify the world or try and notify the, the potentially impacted parties, parties who are potentially operating satellites in those areas. Um, and you might wanna, if you're a big military power, you might wanna give a heads up to others because you don't want someone to misinterpret what you're doing. Absolutely. Um, that's an interesting you know, perspective because um, it depends on how many countries set the precedent and uh, put this as uh, something as a policy, right? For people to kind of follow. One of the worrying trends that we're seeing right now is more and more states are adopting space defense policies. It's not just the United States coming out with the Space Force. Now we've also seen, you know, India's got their own policy and their own dedicated military space unit. Japan now has one, France now has one. I was also quite surprised to see that Italy published their own space defense policy last year in July and they use the word deterrence. You know, most of the most of the features of that policy is focused on making satellites resilient, making the space systems a little bit sturdier, but they also say we need to look into deterrent options. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that they're gonna start looking to, to purchase anti-satellite missiles as well? Uh, is that does that mean that they're gonna have to do some testing that's gonna create additional debris? You know, and seeing more and more countries get used to that idea is, is what has led us uh, to, to start thinking we're, we're looking at a, an arms race and space is a big part of it. You know, I hesitate to use it to say that we're looking at an arms race in outer space because you can't really separate arms, you know, what happens in outer space from what's happening down on earth. It's all tied together. And if US, Russia, China, India, and a few other NATO countries are gearing up for war in a, in a very complete sense. They're not just looking at buying new missiles and new guns and new tanks. Nowadays, they're also looking at cyber options. They're looking at new types of missiles like hypersonics, and they're probably gonna be looking at certain counter space capabilities as well, because that's a part of the complete military package these days. And as far as you know, running simulations before uh, you know testing is concerned, uh, I think you know there was a statement, as I remember from India, for example, that uh, after conducting the test, that they expect the debris to get back, uh, you know, in forty-five days or something. This, I think, no way that you can simulate yeah. in any kind of multi-physics uh, simulations today accurately 
on how and where the debris is going to come out uh, and stay. Yeah. And and if we could, if we had some kind of algorithm or some, any kind of computing power that, that could do that, well, then that computer could probably also tell you whether or not your, your missile can hit a virtual target anyway. Uh, so you know, my sense is it, once we can do the one, the other will be uh, unnecessary. But absolutely, you're absolutely right. And again, this is a conversation I have with Mareva all the time. And he says, there's just, we just don't know. There are way too many factors that, that can go into it uh, to figure out where some of these objects will be. And you know, here we are more than a year later. And I think uh, Mariba was explaining to me that we're still tracking some 30 objects, uh, 30 pieces of debris that were created from the test. And they're still you know, up above 500 kilometers in altitude. So they'll be there for a while. Not as long as the ones from the Chinese test, but, but they'll definitely be there for a bit. You know, you talked about uh, low altitude and so on. So, but then if you look at uh, most of the strategic uh, sets, especially in like communications and so on, they're uh, based in, you know, like the geostationary orbit, right? And uh, are there any yep. tests, uh, anti-satellite tests done in geostationary orbit? And are people looking to also target those satellites there? If then how? Yeah. So we we do know that there are some missiles that could potentially go up to G, to the geosynchronous orbit but they would take a very very long time and you would have hours and hours and hours and hours to to react to something like this you know certainly enough time to pick up the phone call your enemy and say i know exactly what you're doing and i'm about to retaliate before your missile even hits my satellite but what the other uh thing that we've been seeing that that is available for potentially doing strikes on satellites is co-orbital vehicles. So drones, you know, essentially co-orbital drones. Uh, I know a lot of people don't like me using the term drones, but that's essentially what it is. So these are very small, maneuverable vehicle, like little satellite probes that go up and they have electric propulsion and you can pretty much put any tools on them that you want. The main idea is to use these drones or these vehicles for repair, refuel, and potentially to remove dead satellites all very nice functions. However, because these are sort of plug and play platforms, you can put other things on them. For example, uh, there's pretty good indication that a lot of these have special, uh, special antennas to eavesdrop on communications between satellites and terminals back on Earth. We have pretty good indications that they have special types of cameras to observe satellites and to try and figure out, or, you know, to do studies of, of other countries' satellites. This is something that we've been seeing quite a lot, and not just from any one particular actor. I'm sure a lot of people have been hearing about the Russian co-orbital drones, the Lucha Limp, that has been parking next to some other satellites. Uh, you know, last year there was a the year before there was a big issue when um, the the Lucha Limp parked next to a French Italian military satellite, and the the French uh, Minister of Defense came out and she said, "Hey, these guys." They're parked really close to our satellite. They're just hanging out. They're clearly not doing anything but spying on us. Now, one, they were actually parked much closer to a Pakistani satellite, so they could have potentially been spying on the Pakistanis as well. But the Russians aren't the only ones that do this. Uh, the Americans have been doing these kinds of close proximity operations for quite some time. And so, you know, the Russians just kind of shrug their shoulders and say, what, we were, we were observing norms of behavior. Everyone accepts that the Americans do this, so we're just doing it too. Uh, there are also, um, the, the Chinese are also developing um, active debris removal capabilities. So they're also coming out with drones that will also be able to uh, remove trash from space. And you could easily deploy a, uh, a small fleet of these in the geosynchronous orbit to carry out similar activities to what the, uh, the Americans and the Russians are doing. So this is a tool. Um, it's also being developed by industry and academia. Uh, I think one of the most advanced projects right now is coming from the University of Surrey, or the Remove Debris Project, and and they have a number of tools that they're just as good at removing trash as they are to potentially removing uh, live satellites. I mean, they have a space harpoon. How, how cool is that? Uh, you know, you can remove debris, but it can also be used as a weapon. And of course. What is a weapon? You know, this is something that we're we're seeing. It just depends, you know, the what is a weapon depends on who is asking the question. The especially with active debris removal, we've seen that, you know, the Americans refer to 
active debris removal capabilities as a tool. And the Russians and the Chinese will turn around and say, that's not a tool, that's a weapon. You're, you're not planning on removing debris, you're planning on removing our satellites. Likewise, the Americans refer to the Chinese debris removal program as a, as a weapon. So, you know, a lot of the, the discussion is colored by mistrust, really bad relations between people down here on Earth. And so I don't think it's going to be possible to resolve the question of conflict emerging in space if we don't resolve the question of just plain relationships down here on Earth. Yep. From an Indian's perspective, you know, this is, I think, where uh, we've seen the evolution of uh, creation of a defense space agency mature over the years. Uh, because clearly, you know, the the testing of an, an anti-satellite missile doesn't come under the purview of uh, ISRO, which is a civilian space agency. And uh, given that there's a lot of these complexities that are emerging, uh, you know, creating a defense space agency is kind of a natural transition towards all of this. And, and that's one of the tragic truths of all this, I suppose. Uh, I know early on, everybody wanted to talk about space as being this very unique environment where we were only going to be conducting peaceful activities. But the truth of the matter is that space has always been an area where uh, the militaries were very active. We use, the militaries use satellites for so many different operations. I mean, even GPS was run by the Air Force. It's originally an Air Force uh, operate, uh, project. So it, it probably follows that sooner or later we would start to target and, and to try and take advantage of uh, the, the weakness, the, the vulnerabilities presented by satellites. The, it's no different than any other domain or any other environment, except for the physics. And that's where you know, we see that there are some very unique challenges to having these types of weapons emerge. The debris problem is just one of them. You know, the, the fact that some of the trash can start just um, scattering everywhere. But, you know, we're also seeing, for example, jamming technology is very prevalent. Almost any country can get sufficient capabilities to jam satellites. And when you jam one satellite, it doesn't mean that you're just jamming the one signal or the one client that you're trying to target. It can potentially wipe out services to neighboring countries and to lots of civilians. So if we start seeing the widespread use of jamming capabilities for you know, not nuclear strikes, but for less nefarious purposes, you can see a considerable economic, uh, economic impact. Uh, you know, we've had situations where, for example, um, there were signs that North Korea was jamming the uh, GPS signal for the Seoul airport. So whenever aircraft were coming within a certain distance of the airport, they would just lose the GPS signal. Now they have other uh, capabilities to be able to land the aircraft, but that, you know, why would one, why would you do such a thing? And two, you're not targeting any, any military personnel here. You're targeting civilians. And, and the, the danger there is that there could have been a crash that would have involved hundreds of people. Um, and maybe the, the North Koreans were thinking about that. Um, but that's, that is the, the potential danger that we're seeing. I don't know if you've ever had a chat with Attila Matas, but he has also come out with some very uh, unnerving scenarios where people can jam GPS signals or spoof GPS signals at least and cause a lot of chaos. You know, there uh, you can build a, sp a spoofing device for a GPS signal out of basic, basically by spending a hundred bucks on Amazon. Really easy to do. And as we're looking at a future world where all the cars are going to be autonomous. Can you imagine if you have all these autonomous vehicles going down the highway and somebody goes and stands on the side of the highway and turns on one of these spoofers that tells everybody, hey, your GPS location is wrong. You're five feet or five meters too far to the left. I mean, it's it's devastating, absolutely devastating. Um, so these are issues that we're, we're having to look at and try to grapple with. I want to bring two analogies here, which may be very interesting for our listeners. Uh, one is, of course, the nuclear analogy. Like, you know, like I have my own, uh, you know, nuclear missile, and then I now I have my own space missile, and I'm going to shoot down your satellite, and, and you're going to have uh, your own uh, space missile, and you're going to shoot down my missile. So one is that analogy, and where we look at, um, you know, countries having to come together to solve a lot of the nuclear issues and creating trust among nuclear actors and and so how far are we from 
you know, countries creating that kind of uh, trust uh, and realizing that, you know, this could be a big threat to the entire world. The second bit is of this whole, you know, who's going to take responsibility to cleaning up the environment and climate change and everything else and building up consensus, mm. consensus there. Of course, you know, there's much of that already happening in space where we've already polluted a lot of space and we're going to be polluting it a lot more. Uh, so what is your perspective to both of these? Those are both two really big questions. So I'll answer the first one and then remind me about the second one and we'll, and we'll double back. But both are really important issues. So the first one, the development of counter space capabilities is quite funny because there is an assumption of sort of a tit for tat relationship where ah, you blow up my satellite, therefore I'm going to blow up your satellite. It doesn't necessarily have to work that way. You know, if somebody blows up your satellite, you don't necessarily have to go after them in the, you know, in, in the space Achilles heel. You can go after them in other ways and respond in, in, other, uh, in other forms. So as we're seeing more and more counter space capabilities develop, a lot of states are also realizing that the big explosive showy weapons aren't necessarily the most effective. Uh, you can get a lot done with jamming and, and even hacking of, of space systems. So that's that's one end of it. However, counter space capabilities come with a lot of national prestige. When you can show somebody that you can blow something up, states can take it as like a, a sign of oh maturity that you're you're now one of the big kids and you can sit at the big kids table. You know, when uh, Mission Shakti took place, for example. Modi said, with this experiment, we're, show, we're demonstrating that India is now a great space power. Well, I would argue that India was a great space power long before Mission Shakti. Y'all nearly put something on the moon. You sent satellites to Mars for less than the cost of gravity. That's tremendous. That is a sign of a real space power. The, the testing of a, of a missile you know, that is intended for missile defense and instead hit a satellite that's almost like a step down for what the, the missile defense systems are, are intended. So nevertheless, it, it shows a sign to the rest of the world that, that India has achieved a certain technological maturity. So from that aspect, you know, I don't think we're going to see a, a live fire situation where people are shooting at each other's satellites, but I do see a situation where states will continue to try and one-up each other on the, on the international stage by showing their new technologies and their new fancy weapons in, in space. And you can use that with your, uh, with your domestic audience. It plays well with voters and it shows people that, oh, you know, our great leaders are out there developing new swords and new shields to protect us from all these you know, rivals that we have, uh, all these foreign rivals that are out there and that wanna come in and, and attack us. And in reality, if something like that is were to happen, it's it will involve some aspects of space, but it's not going to be a full-blown war in space. That being said, because this is such a high-profile problem, it's very difficult to get states to agree on how we should deal with this challenge. Uh, the United Nations and, and states in the United Nations have been discussing the prevention of an arms race in space for my lifetime, you know, almost 40 years, a little over 40 years. And we still see the exact same divisions from when they first started talking about the problem. We have the Western countries on one end talking about uh, wanting to protect their space systems and make sure that there are not threats to their space systems. And then we've got you know, Russia and China and really the, uh, most of the rest of the world who are very concerned about people putting weapons in space. And whether these weapons are going to attack other space objects or, or objects on the ground is almost irrelevant. And to them, the, the problem is we don't want weapons in, in orbit. In, in fact, the, the Russian and Chinese proposal on a treaty also includes the prevention of the threat or use of force against space objects. So arguably, that covers everything. But we don't know how to apply those rules. You know, we've already argued for ages that we can't define a weapon. Well, before we even start defining what a weapon in outer space is, tell me, what is an attack on an object in space? What is the use of force? On an object in space. You know, a lot of lawyers and a lot of scholars will tell you, well, you know, there's a gap in the law that is permitting an arms race in outer space. 
I would argue it's not a gap in the law. It's that we just don't know how to apply the rules that we have in outer space. Um, last year, NATO announced, for example, that they are making it a policy that an attack on a satellite is sufficient to trigger collective self-defense. Well, what's an attack? We know that Russians and NATO countries are jamming each other's satellites from time to time. We know that they're kind of poking around at the edges to see just how much they can get away with. Well, at some point, someone is going to make a miscalculation. They're going to poke at the wrong satellite and the other country is going to take it the wrong way. And then before you know it, we're in a crisis. So one of the, the initiatives that, or, or one of the th approaches that we, we feel could be very useful for helping states to avoid that kind of miscalculation is just coming up with some rules of engagement. Just say, look, it is my policy that jamming my satellite is an act of war. It's use of force. And if you jam my satellite, I will react appropriately. If you come out and say it that way, then there's no mystery. And if somebody messes with your satellite, then you know that they're intending, intending to do it for a, a greater reason or they're expecting to elicit a response and then you give that response. But you're clear and upfront about it from the very beginning. Right now, it, it's like a brother and sister who are just kind of punching each other in the arms, looking to see how far is too far. And, and the problem is that eventually somebody hits a little too hard, somebody starts crying, and then it just turns into a mess. So we're really hoping that we can avoid that by being more transparent about policies and, and doctrines and what are the what are the limits of of these exercises? Um, so that's that's to your first question. Uh, the second question: Who's going to take responsibility? That's we have this issue with climate as well. Carbon uh, carbon emissions, for example, there are a lot of countries that did a lot of trial and error getting into outer space and trying out different experiments and using rockets. And unfortunately, they weren't really worried about space debris back in those uh, in the early days. So we just saw a lot of trash getting littered everywhere. It's still up there. And now we're having to figure out how to, to live with it. Well, as we come up with new rules to mitigate debris, some of the, the emerging space actors, the countries that are still just getting going, they're saying, wait a minute, you guys made a huge mess in space. And now that I'm trying to get up into outer space, you're putting all these new rules that are making it harder for me to, to access outer space because now I have to worry about debris and I can't leave uh, rocket bodies up there. And I have to make, uh, make sure that all the satellites are going to be able to either deorbit themselves or move to a graveyard orbit. That makes space more expensive and, more, uh, and less accessible. So as we look at these rules and as we try to come up with good guidelines and norms, um, it's very important to consider what is, uh, and Peter Martinez from Secure World Foundation mentioned this, um, he calls it being culturally sensitive to the, the needs of others. And by culturally sensitive, he means any of the norms and guidelines that we come up with need to be, um, everyone needs to be able to follow them. You know, we cannot have a negative impact on the accessibility of space for new space actors but we can at least offer some guidance on how to do things in a way that, that doesn't add on to the mess and add on to the problem. And there's a lot of ways that, that I think developed countries uh, and, and the major space actors could help this process. One is sharing technology and, and know-how that is already kind of normal for them. You know, we're not talking about super cutting edge activities, but just basic stuff like you know, some of the practices with launches um, and also some of the deorbiting practices for satellites. There are different tips and tricks that you know, NASA or Roscosmos or, um, or the Chinese Space Agency could give to some of the to, to some of the new space actors and say, look, we mastered this, we got the hang of it, but here are some ideas that if you're going to be launching things, here's how you can do things in a, in a much more um, responsible way. And, and that could at least help to, to mitigate some of the costs that, that new space actors are going to be taking on. But, you know, it's, it's important to remember everybody has a right to access space. And if we want to be able to use this global commons, don't care what the U.S. says, it is a global commons, uh, it, it, it behooves us to try and work with one another to come up with 
rules that fit everyone, the same way that we do for the highway. We have traffic rules, we have air traffic rules, we even have rules for for the sea. And we just haven't been operating in space that long. But we're definitely seeing that with so many new satellites going up, especially in the low Earth orbit, we need to be a lot more efficient than, than we're being now. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, one of the interesting bits uh, there is, um, you know, what can a country like India, which is kind of starting out in the whole space security scene, and who has some capability, has, mm. uh, you know, some uh, demonstrable technologies out there, can uh, set as a, you know, be a leader in adopting some best practices or, you know, creating some uh, uh, policies that are kind of can be globally followed. Do you have any ideas on this? Sure. Uh, I mean, first and foremost, and this is something that India is already doing, is be upfront about your policy, your doctrine, your strategy. What what are India's, what are its goals? What are its intentions? And, and what are the, the tools that it's willing to, to use in order to achieve those goals? I think first and foremost, by laying that out, it gives a lot of uh, clarity and certainty to other countries about where India is going. And that way, people can put India's activities in context. And they can say, okay, India is about to launch this satellite. Is this a problem? Well, let's see. They're already signed up to the debris mitigation uh, or they've, they've implemented the debris mitigation guidelines. Uh, they're, they've adopted their own anti-satellite test guidelines. We know that they you know, understand the danger of debris and that creating debris is a really big issue. Uh, and we also know that they are you know, trying to promote the peaceful use of outer space as much as possible and, you know, non-interference with other satellites. So I'm not entirely sure what the payload on that rocket is, but given those principles that India has implemented, I can at least have some confidence that whatever they're launching is not going to be a national security threat to me. So already, I think that's a good start. Um, and then, you know, what I've also said is they could implement unilaterally certain uh, certain measures and just say, look, we don't care what the rest of the world is doing, but we recognize that certain actions and certain activities have a big impact on everyone. So we're, we know that the international community is working on, on deciding some, some new rules, but in the meantime, we're just going to go ahead and say that we've already tested an anti-satellite missile. We know we can hit something. We may continue to test, but we're not going to hit anything anymore. We're good with that. So that's it. If India were to implement such a policy, it already starts building the argument that states see you know, uh, kinetic anti-satellite testing, the actual hitting of objects in space as being bad, that it's something we don't want. And it starts setting the norm. So even if states haven't come to an explicit agreement, we can at least say, well, there's not an explicit agreement, but we are seeing states put in place these rules. That's really useful. Um, that way, India can already start being a leader, but it doesn't require any input from anyone outside. On the other hand, India is in a very unique position in the international community. It's a, in terms of space, it is one of the major space powers. There's no denying it. But India also has very close ties to a lot of the developing world that maybe countries like the United States and Russia don't. So India could actually play a really big role in getting some of the new space actors or some of the countries that are, that are not space actors yet, but that are, are benefiting from space services. I think India could be a tremendous ambassador in going out to them and saying, we need to adopt these rules and, and to come to agreements on these issues because it benefits all of us. And, and as a country, you know, one of the major powers in South Asia and, and a big international player, India's, India's actions will be looked at and they'll be noticed. And if it takes certain measures to protect the space environment, there's no doubt that many, many other countries would be willing to follow along. Um, certainly many of the countries in, in the developing world. And if we look at the votes in the, in the UN General Assembly every year uh, on the resolutions related to space security, you can see that the vast majority of the world could care less how we achieve uh, a, a more secure uh, or more stable space environment, whether it be a legally binding treaty or political agreements, whatever. They just want to see something serious being done. And, and if India is one of the countries that is uh, proposing a particular approach, 
I think lots of countries would see that as something serious and as something that should be considered by the whole, by the international community as a whole. Yeah, I strongly believe that uh, a start of all of that could be, you know, India's contribution to the whole space situational awareness as in, you know, what is going on in the outer space and how that data is made accessible to all the other countries. Uh, of course, you know, today you have uh, some of this data being open source, uh, visible, you know, available openly, but then uh, there's there's a lot of capabilities that are still in the military domain. And uh, even now you have a lot of commercial actors coming up, setting up their own, uh, you know, radars and, and assets where they could provide a service uh, on, you know, looking at uh, what is available out there or, you know, what is going on in the outer space. But then, you know, you have now one functional radar in India, which is the multi-object uh, tracking radar. And then there's a new project called Project Netra. I don't know if you have seen that project, but essentially that's a new project that India is now building. It's a new radar that can uh, have uh, pretty much uh, very good sophisticated technology that can look at uh, objects up to 1,200 kilometers uh, and then up to the geo orbit. That's a new uh, new radar that uh, that they are now building. So what would be very interesting to see is uh, if uh, a country like India can put all of that information uh, publicly and make it openly accessible for any actor out there to to pick up that information because it's ha it has nothing to do with uh, with defense or or any other military uh, you know technology or or perspective it's more about you know making uh, a contribution or a first step where others can follow suit so that. Uh, overall the kind of the the entire world benefits out of this absolutely and you know as you said the the commercial actors who are providing a lot of the open source information have kicked off this trend where it, it no longer really makes sense to try and hide things in space when you launch a satellite especially in the geosynchronous orbit pretty much everyone can see it now there's no centralized international space situational awareness body that collects all this data and then shares it with everyone right now. And that's probably never even going to happen because some of this data is considered to be very sensitive. But one of the hopes that, that I would like, or that I have for this is that we end up with so many different SSA networks and systems that everyone is cross-checking each other. So, ah, the Air Force claims that this happened. Well, you know, the Russian system says, nope, we have different data. And the Indian system says, nope, we... We're also, you know, observing in that area, and we didn't see that. Or, you know, then a an AGI or um, an exoanalytics can come in and provide their own data and say, well, well, actually, we saw it this way. And you know, the, the same occurrence observed by ten different actors, everybody could have a, a different idea of what took place. But by having so many different or so much input coming from different sources, then we can correlate everything and figure out, okay, well, what actually happened. And with more and more eyes on the sky, and this is actually the, the, one of the papers that I, I wrote last year uh, in thinking about verification in space, it's getting easier and easier to, to verify what's going on. Now, we don't always know what an object is, but we can certainly spot it and we can certainly watch it. You know, you can uh, detect and you can track. The lower Earth orbit is a little bit trickier. Uh, because things are moving much faster, and uh, I think I mean, now we're just getting so many more objects. But with some of the new radars that are coming out and some of the new capabilities, we should be also getting to a point, maybe in the next 10 or 15 years, where we can have a pretty good idea of what's happening in, in low Earth orbit as well. And with more and more actors being able to see, it's not so easy for one country or another to engage in nefarious activities, because they know someone is going to see me somebody somewhere is going to know exactly what I'm up to. You know, and a, a great example about this is, you remember a few years ago when we had the, the swarm incident where the swarm technologies launched the four space bees uh, on, an, on an, uh, a PSLV, right? And I mean, these things are like the size of a sandwich, essentially. And they got picked up by amateur, uh, amateur stargazers. It wasn't even like the military or somebody who went like, oh, nope, that's, those things aren't supposed to be there. It was just some, some folks who like watching the, the night sky. So with so many different people looking and getting better and better 
telescopes and better uh, processing capabilities, there's no reason why we shouldn't get to a point where we have near perfect awareness of, of what's happening in outer space. And once we've got that, once we know that people are watching all of our moves, people behave very differently. And I think they'll be um, much more prone to following whatever norms or rules we set up in those environments, just because they know that they're going to be seen. So if India can build up an additional uh, SSA capability, that just adds on to the to stability in, in space. But they do need to share the data. That's the important part, is finding ways to make sure that the data is, um, if not readily available to the public, uh, to find ways that they can share that information with allies and partners readily. Yeah, it could be a very interesting uh, you know, diplomatic tool uh, of using space uh, situational awareness as a part of uh, you know, uh, inter-country diplomacy. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And that's something we've been seeing since the Cold War days when, when the Americans and the Soviets uh, tried to share a lot of data. Today, you know, we know China, for example, has a sophisticated SSA network, but they, they don't share very much data at all. Um, Russia has, uh, you know, they work in collaboration. What's it called? The ISOM, International Space Observation Network. Uh, it's a collaboration with like 17 countries. They've got telescopes all over the world uh, and they're collecting a lot of data. And they do share some of that, though, in a limited capacity. Um, and our good friend Mariba, who runs Astriograph, you know, he's pulling data from the U.S. Air Force, from the Russians, from a couple of different private companies. And so he's able to collate all of that information into this neat graphic where we can see in fairly real time where objects are in space and, and track some of those things. And just by doing this, it gives us all, it, it provides transparency and tells everyone, hey, whatever you do, we can all see it. And if you misbehave, we'll know. Yeah, you know, a few years back, I think in 2014 or 15, uh, you know, when Indian Prime Minister uh, you know, Modi was recently kind of elected, uh, I remember him going to Brazil and then signing an agreement there of uh, providing a ground station to the Brazilians uh, to access Indian data. And that was to kind of counter the whole China-Brazil program because the Brazilians work very closely with the Chinese with the CBERS satellite program where the earth observation satellites are jointly built between China and Brazil. And this could be also very interesting because, you know, essentially the Indian diplomatic mission can say to all the developing countries in the world saying, you now have a kind of a terminal that we will give you or, a, you know, uh, an access to the space situational data through our mission. And uh, through this, you have now access to, to the whole space environment uh, through the capabilities that we've established and are willing to share. Oh, I mean, we've seen the power of space diplomacy on a number of fronts. Um, China is certainly engaging in a lot more of it. You know, they're trying to, to find different ways. You know, I think they've been making promises uh, about sending experiments to the Chinese space station uh, from different countries. Uh, you know, the U.S. has done it. The Russians have done it. It's a powerful tool. It sparks the imagination and, and makes people kind of go, wow, we're, we're becoming space powers. Years ago, uh, I think, Ecuador launched a satellite, like a little tiny Pegasus satellite, uh, and it didn't really do much. It, it went up, and I think um, you, you could pick up the signal. It was playing the Ecuadorian, uh, the Ecuadorian national anthem on loop. But that was a big deal for them, and, and it was a big accomplishment for them to be able to get a satellite into space. Uh, you know, everyone keeps. I know everyone kind of freaks out when Iran launches a military satellite, but. You know, they're also trying to develop these capabilities because it one it looks really good to your public and two these are just tools that are a part of, of every modern military and increasingly just modern governments we use satellites for earth observation to figure out where to grow crops or how the weather is doing or you know where there's drought and where refugees are moving we, we use satellites for so many different things it, it is a, a badge of prestige that being said, how do we use those that diplomatic tool in a positive way as opposed to trying to send warnings and, and uh, caution to, to our rivals? Um, it's, it's been a tricky balance. And certainly what we've been seeing lately is that at least one government sees a lot of value in having a very 
uh, aggressive stance, a very aggressive posture in, in outer space. It sells, it sells well with voters, I suppose. Um, so hopefully we'll be able to transition that, that dialogue and, and that, that discourse into something that is a, a little bit more um, humanitarian, something that you know, more scientific or exploratory in nature. But for, for the time being, I think that kind of rhetoric is just reflective of relations around the world. But uh, right now, just politics are rough, really rough between the, the major powers. Yeah, the whole you know commercial scene that is coming t- together, it's an interesting dynamic that I think uh, not many people have um, kind of commented on and would like you to comment on it. So, for example, you know you see almost eighty uh, percent of all the commercial you know companies that are coming out in space are all based in the U.S. Or hardly twenty percent of them are uh, from other geographies. For example, you know, you would see like 25 companies in India where you have 2,500 companies in the U.S. doing some of it, right? And that's uh, very interesting for space security maybe because, you know, countries might say that we have space agencies that are government-driven and most of our activity is government and they're kind of restrictive in nature because the exploitation of space is kind of, for us, only to a military extent or to a limited extent even in the civilian front. So, uh, you know, there could be that uh, a country like U.S. has a lot more to lose because there's a lot of commercialization of space that is happening and against a country like Russia or, or China or so on, where the use of space is more still in the military domain or more still in the, uh, you know, not so much of the civilian and the commercial integration, right? So what do you think about this? Yeah. Well, I, I mean... Russia and China also use space for a lot of commercial purposes, even if those companies uh, are very closely linked to the to the governments. But it's true, the so many of the space companies and a lot of investment that is going into space is originating from the United States. So the, the incentive for the United States to be the leader in responsible uses of space is great because they really have the most to lose. Um, it, it would greatly benefit the United States to make sure that all other states are following norms of behavior, that they're following responsible practices. And one of the areas in space security where we have seen this fear uh, really come up and and present a tangible problem actually presented itself in what, 2016? Uh, when, do you remember when North Korea fired their first really long range ICBM and a lot of folks in the news were saying, oh my God, North Korea can finally hit California. Well, I was having chats with folks in the Department of Defense and they were all saying, you know, we're not actually worried that North Korea is going to try to hit us because we have extensive missile defense that can take care of that. The problem is if North Korea decides to strap a nuclear weapon to one of those missiles and just fire it straight up into orbit. And if it detonates, it generates an electromagnetic pulse that knocks out, will knock out a lot of satellites. I mean, the, especially on countries like South Korea, China, um, Japan, Vietnam, I mean, the whole Southeast Asia, they could experience outages of satellites in, a, in an instant. And that doesn't even begin to cover like what else might happen. So, you know, if, if North Korea, for example, felt that there was an imminent uh, threat of attack from the U.S. or, or from South Korea, that is one of the options that they could potentially pursue. Because I mean, how many satellites does North Korea have? So they, they wouldn't be losing out on, on much. Um, I, I think there's some concern that Iran would do something like that as well. Uh, I, don't, I don't see it happening, but um, you know, unless they were put in a situation where it was just absolute and, and a very dire um, crisis. But that, that could certainly, that, that's one of the big threats, and it would cripple the United States more than any other country in the world. Um, although, of course, you know, Europe, India, uh, many others could also uh, take a big hit. You know, when you and I attended one of the Observer Research Foundation uh, Kalpana Chawla dialogues, I think it was the French minister who brought up that statistic about uh, the average Indian depends on 11 satellites a day. That's massive. Like 11 satellites a day. The world without satellite capabilities would be 
drastically different from, from what we experience today. We're not just talking about GPS and GNSS. It, it could cover a whole other range of things. So hopefully we won't ever get to that problem. And we just, we need to communicate, especially to some of the big uh, major space powers, that it's in their interest to, uh, to restrain themselves. My uh, last and final question to you would be, you know, what do you think will, or your prediction is in the 10 years from now? What would be the scenario in space security, you know, space situational awareness? How do you see actors evolving and what would be the scene like? It's, it's quite tricky because some of the traditional alliances that, that existed in, in the international community, I think, are, are really getting shaken up right now. Uh, U.S. has taken certain positions, I think, that has uh, somewhat alienated its traditional allies. And certainly, I think some of the allies are starting to, to wonder if they need to go their own route in pursuing um, agreements and, and options for ensuring access to the, to the space environment. But the U.S. is still a big player, and so they're going to have to be brought along in, in some degree. However, <laughs> we also know that the United States never signs an agreement unless they know that they can get punched in the nose, too. Like, unless it's a do-or-die situation. Uh, the U.S. tends to hold back on on agreeing to anything. Well, counter space capabilities are becoming increasingly widespread, and I, I think cer certainly some folks in, in the United States are becoming very aware of the, the threats to stability and to their own um, space infrastructure that, that could happen if we don't adopt some rules. Um, there are two initiatives or, or two possible initiatives that I think really have a good chance of, of being adopted. One is ASAT test guidelines. Everyone has a stake in it. Nobody wants to create the debris uh, that, that results from these tests. And, and we know that it could raise a lot of problems indiscriminately. Uh, there are a number of states that have expressed interest in pursuing these. Uh, like Canada, for example, in their opening statement to the Conference on Disarmament, came out and said, no, one thing we could be looking at are ASAT test guidelines. Um, two very important figures in, in governments that have been promoting ASAT test guidelines for a long time. One, or not a long time, but strongly. One is Dmitry Rogozin, the director of Roscosmos. He had two press conferences last year where he indicated that he wanted his office to initiate negotiations on um, the prohibition of uh, ASAT testing. Now, you know, he would have to coordinate that with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, but having a big personality like Dmitry Rogozin really gives a lot of weight and credibility to that initiative. Likewise, Doug Libero, who is now in charge of human spaceflight over at NASA. Now, Doug is one of the, the founders of the Space Force. He's, he's a, you know, a fairly hawkish person when it comes to, to space security, but he also recognizes and has been championing a ban on kinetic ASAT testing for a very long time. And now that he's in charge of human spaceflight for NASA, he recognizes that the debris created from this stuff is a threat to his astronauts. So those are two very uh, prominent figures that I think could be a, a big support to an initiative on uh, ban or at least setting up guidelines for the way that we test ASATs. The other thing that I think we can do that is more related to space safety but has security benefits is space traffic management. Come up with some basic rules for uh, traffic, of, you know, essentially rules of the road, so that people know who goes left, who goes right, who goes up, who goes down. Um, and by setting up those types of rules or guidelines, you set them up for safety, but then you at least establish what is normal behavior. And then we can start identifying abnormal behavior and say, all right, this is what a normal actor would do in this situation, but this is what you're doing. This is not normal. Therefore, I can classify this as a threat. Right now, you know, especially with things like the Lucha Limp, when the Americans come out and say, oh, well, this satellite is acting abnormally, well, what's normal? Define normal. I mean, is the S-37B, the, the Boeing space plane, is that normal? Um, no. And, and at least by setting up some rules, then we have an objective standard by which we can say, this is okay behavior and this is not okay. Maybe something that we work into the space traffic management is the idea of safety zones, where you say, hey, 
your little satellite probe, your co-orbital drone, it cannot come within 50 kilometers of my satellite without my permission, or even five kilometers of my satellite. Now, that's not going to deal with problems like espionage, but at the very least, that'll deal with problems like, um, you know, physical harm being done to somebody else's satellite. And so, you know, ASAT test guidelines could potentially be negotiated here in Geneva at the Conference on Disarmament if they ever get a work program going, or it could be discussed at the at the first committee for the General Assembly. Uh, meanwhile, space safety uh, or the space traffic management could obviously be discussed at Copios in, in Vienna. And the great thing is that ASAT test guidelines is a security issue that has safety implications. And space traffic management is a safety issue that has security implications. And so the two, can, the two communities could actually support each other, uh, even if they're not dealing directly with the, the safety or security aspects of it. Um, so in 10 years, yeah, I could see ASAT test guidelines being a thing. And, and yeah, I mean, space traffic management is something that we certainly need. And, and the fact that even industry is calling for, for traffic management I think will be a big support. Um, it might take another 10 years to negotiate it, given how long it took to negotiate long, the long-term sustainability guidelines. But yeah, I, I think we could make some progress. I definitely hope so. Daniel, thank you so much for taking an hour out uh, to speaking with me. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, thank you. And if anybody wants to read more about some of the stuff we're doing, I highly recommend everyone check out our website. Um, we're about to publish a new paper on rethinking the prevention of an arms race in outer space, uh, which looks at indicators of an arms race in space and kind of says like, yeah, we're, we're getting there and offer some ideas on how we can try to pull back. Uh, we're also gonna be having another paper coming out on um, uses of the term safety and security in various languages um, and, and other stuff coming coming up. And we've also got our space uh, uh, webinar series for Unigear called the Launchpad will be starting on May 20th. Um, and so there will be a series of panels that will be discussing some more space security topics. And we'd love to have everyone join us. All right, sir. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure.